Hi folks, I'm Mary Claire Erdnest. Welcome to Play for Keeps podcast. We are recording new plays as podcasts in Ashland, Oregon, as a part of the Ashland New Plays Festival. We have created this podcast series to let you in on a conversation between creators at the front lines of new works. Today, you'll be hearing from Carrie Bentley Quinn and me, Mary Claire Erdenast. Carrie is a playwright based in New York City and is the co-founder of Mission to Dip Mars, a theater company based in Queens. Carrie's play, The Worst Mother in the World, can be found on our premium collection of pod plays at playforkeeps.org. And it just received its world premiere at Halcyon Theater in Chicago this past spring. And you'll hear from me, Mary Claire Erdnast. I'm an actor and theater administrator located in the San Francisco Bay Area. Hi, Kari. Nice to actually meet you. It's actually pronounced Carrie. We'll just oh, get that wow. out of the way. I know. It's spelled Kari, but ah. my parents decided to make my life difficult. So, Carrie Bentley Quinn. Wow, I feel awful now. No, you shouldn't feel awful. Um, I would say like 50 50. Most of the time I get, actually, lately, most of the time I've been getting Kari. So it's like, I feel like the younger generation of K A R I has been getting the Kari pronunciation. <laughs> Well, my parents did me a service by spelling my name Marie Claire, and it's Mary Claire, so. Oh, well, there you go. I, w- <laughs> I wasn't sure I was actually going to ask you. <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, I actually did. I don't know if you know this, but I'm a reader for Ashland New Place Festival, and I, I read your know play. that. No. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah that was so- like a couple of years ago I sent that in, I think. Yeah, and I remember it from when I read it. It was it was a topic topic of contention with many of the readers. Interesting. In what way was it a topic of contention? I'm fascinated. Well, some people really connected with the play, and some people were frustrated. I think by the imagery, and not everyone really connected to it. Um, and uh, I have a friend who's also a reader. Uh, Gray, I don't know if you've ever met him. He leads the reading committee at Ashland New Place Festival, and it was his favorite play that year. Wow! Um, he fought for it tooth and nail. Oh wow! That's well. That's really nice to hear. I mean, it's always nice to hear you're someone's favorite. Um, I'm not surprised that some people didn't connect with it because I do feel like, first of all, I've written three women who are not always on their best behavior. Um, Actually, through most of the play, no one is at their best behavior. (laughs) Um, And I do feel like, especially with female roles, I feel like whether somebody admits that or not, it can be alienating. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's true of, you know, most difficult, right. I'm using scare quotes. You can't see me, but like, you know, difficult female characters. I do feel like people sometimes feel alienated or, di- you know, distanced from that. Um, but as far as the imagery goes, yeah, I like, I went with something, uh, I went with something weird, but I, I knew when I started the play that I wanted to somehow personify Nina's depression and her anxiety, um, and somehow put that into an image. And, um, I didn't actually know what that image was going to be until, um, Tina Howe, who was my advisor in grad school, um, and me and my classmates and her went to the Whitney museum. This was after we graduated. And that was where I saw 
diver by Andreas Feininger. And that is the image that just why that particular image springboarded that in my head. I don't know, but I just got this very clear image of this woman wearing a diving mask, you know, haunting Nina, um, in her psyche. And so that was how that image came together. Um, yeah. So I know it's, I know it's weird, but having just seen it staged, honestly, it came out pretty cool. (laughs) So, um, which was exciting because I wasn't sure how it was going to land. Yeah. I I remember reading the play and being both confused and fascinated and haunted by the scuba diver and the giant baby. Yeah. We, um, (laughs) the giant baby didn't actually make it into this production. Um, for partially for technical reasons, but also also because um, my director Tony Adams had this really cool idea because we were working around technical because like making a giant baby head or giant baby is not an easy thing, mm-hmm. um, and so with the time constraints and the budget constraints that we had, the diver um, comes out and she's wearing this huge robe that she spreads open like wings, and Nina crawls over to her and wraps her arms around her waist, and she literally swallows her up. Oh, yeah! Wow. It was. I'm actually like, I would change. I might change it in the script and um, give Tony credit if if it ever gets published, just because like it was so powerful to see a woman swallowing up another woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's crazy. Where was the production? I remember that it had a production, but tell me more about ab- about it. Yeah, we were at um, Halcyon Theater in Chicago. They're a storefront theater in uh, Albany Park, which is um, pretty far. It's pretty far north of like Chicago proper. It's like right near Lake Lincoln Square and Ravenswood. It's a little north of that. Um, and they, um, I had sent Tony Adams the script. Um, I went to see a production of Fefu and her friends that they did, and I was really impressed. Um, and they also produced my friend, uh, Callie Kimball. Um, oh, I so, know Callie Kimball. She's oh, also, you know, oh, that's wait. right. Cause she well, was she, Ashlyn. She yeah. She won, uh, for Sofa Yeah, she did. Yeah, she did. I love that play. Um, so Callie had been produced there. And so I, and I had kind of known Tony, um, through mutual friends and through social media. Um, and so I met Tony and I was really impressed with the job they did on Fefu because it's not an easy play and they did an amazing job and had really strong women actors. Um, and so I sent him the play and then I didn't, he- I didn't hear anything from him for over uh, close to two years, I think. And it was really funny because my, uh, my, my initial impulse was, Oh, he just didn't dig it. You know, he, Mm -hmm. you know, he, that wasn't his thing and he's, you know, an exceedingly nice person and isn't going to want to say that. So, okay. Um, and then last March he emailed me and said, do you think this play is ready for production? And I was like, is that a trick question? <laughs> you know, because it's always like when the thing actually happens, it's always so exciting, but kind of surreal. Like, oh, this is really happening. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And so then uh, we opened uh, this year, um, just this past couple of months, we opened on March 31st um, and the run just closed last weekend. Wow. That's so cool. It was awesome. I had a great time. The actors in my show were just Kiana, Suzanne, uh, Jen, who am I forgetting? Marin. Oh my God. They're all just wonderful actors and they did an extraordinary job and people really responded very positively to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious, um, what were the differences for your experience hearing the play for keeps recording versus seeing a production of it? 
you know, it was really interesting. The play for keeps reading of it, which you guys did such an awesome job in, uh, by the way. Um, Thank you. No, it was, it was great. And it was really nice for me to like hear it in a process where I had nothing to do with it. If that makes any sense. Like Mm -hmm. this is just, we didn't really have Jim and I didn't have like a huge long conversation about the play. It was directed by someone that I wasn't there. I wasn't sitting in the room. I wasn't able to make any changes. So it was like really hearing the play from a really outside, almost like from an outsider perspective. Um, So that was helpful. And I definitely did a fair amount of rewriting for the production. So it's not that the script, like nothing, nothing in the script that you guys read doesn't happen. Like everything happens. It's Mm -hmm. just the end is a little bit different. Oh, Mm-hmm. How does the end change? Um, God, I did so much rewriting. Let me think. Um, it's not super different. It's more that um, I gave Mary and her mother, Bonnie, a little bit of an extra breathing scene after mm-hmm. um, Mary reveals to her mother that she's been, you know, abused. Mm-hmm. That, like, reverse therapy scene. And... Um, I kind of gave them a little coda to that scene, first of all, because Jen has to go from having a full-blown anxiety attack to then being professional doctor therapist in the very next scene. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and that's just a tough ask. If somebody's really getting to that heightened anxiety place and then having them just shut it off immediately. And I also realized that I left their relationship very up in the air. Mm -hmm. Um, which I think is an okay choice, but I think that I gave them just this little tiny two minute scene and it's not like, you know, they don't like kiss and make up, but it shows that there is a door for these two women to walk through if they both want to, Mm -hmm. to have a relationship. So that's really, I mean, that's really the biggest, the biggest change. Um, and then there's also a new scene with Mary and Nina, um, oh Ooh. no, that's the biggest change. Actually, I just remembered. I just like <laughs> the scene. There is a little um, Mary is visibly pregnant and runs into Nina at the park at the end. Oh, um, and that's right before the last, the very last image of the play. Um, and it's also one of those conversations where no, it's not wrapped up neatly in a bow, but maybe there's a little bit of a mutual understanding mm-hmm. between them. Um, they're not going to go off and be, you know, best friends now, mm-hmm. but there's like a moment of mutual understanding. Yeah, it was, it, uh, you wouldn't know the cast, but Erica Sullivan and Tamara Mathias were amazing to work with. And it was such an interesting experience because I was the only, they were, they are both actually mothers um, and I'm not a mother. So having that experience of the, of them knowing and me not knowing, which I think paralleled to the characters, mm-hmm. um, what was definitely an interesting experience. Um, that scene that you mentioned, the reverse therapy scene, I think both of the times that we read through it, both Eric and I were just staring into each other's eyes and I was weeping. Oh man. Yeah. I mean, you guys, I mean, I remember the reading of that scene, I, even on the podcast, it was just really, it was really powerful to hear it. Um, and very emotional, Um, and it's, it's one of those scenes. It just took me for that scene took me forever to write. And speaking of Callie Kimball, I seriously, I think I emailed her like 25 versions of that scene (laughs) and I just kept being, cause it's very carefully calibrated. Right. Because Mm -hmm. at any moment, Bonnie could just be like, I'm done and walk out of the room. And Mary has to go there. And it's, it, it was just like a super, 
uh, challenge. But yeah, I mean, I'm not a mother either, you know, so it's, mm-hmm. it was, I was writing for an experience that I haven't had, but my best friend had a, um, how old was Lily when, so my friend Shannon had a daughter. I think Lily was like two or three when I started writing this play. So I had seen her go through a pregnancy and it was like the first time because she lived down the street from me at the time they moved to North Carolina. But, um, it was my first time really being around someone who was pregnant and being there all the time. Like I was at her house like once a week and kind of watching her go through pregnancy and go through childbirth. And pregnancy is something that it fascinates me and it, it, I find it completely terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> um, pregnancy and childbirth is just really scary. And then postpartum depression is this really common problem. Mm-hmm. And I don't think, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there are other ways about it, but I don't see it dramatized very often, either in theater or on television. Like, oh, okay, you have a baby now. Great. It doesn't talk about what happens if that doesn't work out the way you want it to. Yeah, absolutely. I remember people, that was one of the things that people really brought up when we were reading the play was that they didn't know any plays about postpartum depression and how it's something that we should be talking about. And no one ever does that. It's kind of a taboo topic still today. Yeah. And it's very, it's, it's really weird that, you know, I feel like there is still stigma around, Oh, there's the train. Uh, There's still stigma around mental health. Um, There is still stigma admitting you have depression or anxiety, but I feel like it's less so than it used to be. Um, But for some reason, anything having to do with motherhood um, has this huge stigma around it. And I think it's partially because you're supposed to drop everything and take care of your baby. Mm -hmm. And if you're dealing with your mental health issues that you're being neglectful or you're, you know, you're not strong enough to do this or you're a bad mother. And I think that people do think that women who struggle with this are bad mothers, not Mm -hmm. everybody, but some people do think that. Yeah, absolutely. There's so much judgment that we put onto women about being a quote unquote mother. And -hmm. I think that's really explored in the play is that what does it mean to be a good mother and how can you be a good mother? Um, and aren't we all at the end of the day, the worst mother in the world from our own perspective and from everyone else's? Oh God. I mean, and people, people have been like, Oh, this play, is it about like your mother? And I'm like, no, it's about women these expectations that are put on women and mm-hmm. how that th- that set of expectations works against us mm-hmm. all the time. You know, mm-hmm. and I mean, look at, you know, Bonnie, who's a therapist and a professional and she has a degree and she, you know, she's got all her whole life together, but there's this whole other part of her life that's just not working that she can't, she can't see the truth of that, you know, because she's expected to be strong. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it, it's, it's one of those things where I feel like society wants us to be a certain way. And then when we don't fit that way, they want us to be, we're punished for it. Yeah. And that makes it hard to raise functional children. Absolutely. I remember just recording it and, you know, as an actor, I should really be identifying with my character and I did, but a lot of the (laughs) things that Nina had to say really rang true for me and were frightening Um, that she has really very visceral fears about things that are not simple and things that are not easy to swallow, um, that her having a child would put 
her relationship into strain and how it was nothing that she had expected and that her whole life had changed and there was nothing she could do about it. And that's just what her life was now. You know, those are scary thoughts, even if it's not about having a child, just the expectations that women are required that society requires women to be perfect in certain areas and how it puts a strain on, on the ways that they're actually happy. Yeah, totally. I mean, when I wrote that, the first scene I wrote in the play, um, I had to do an exercise. My, it was my last semester of grad school. It was towards the end and I in no way wanted to write at that point. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) I'm not writing anymore, but, um, is an exercise and that scene where Nina reads from her journal and says that she's afraid that she, she knows that she doesn't love her baby, mm-hmm. um, was the first thing I wrote. And that scene is basically intact and the play kind wow. of was built up. Yeah. I mean, there's a few changes, but I was actually reading the first version of it the other day. I found it in my folder and I was like, Oh, that didn't really change a whole lot. Like it changed a little bit. It's a little shorter, but, um, yeah, it was the first scene. And I think I was listening to, or I was reading the Dear Sugar column, you know, wonderful. Oh, Have you, that, you've read that yeah. with Cheryl Strade? Yeah. Um, yeah, actually, um, I work at San Francisco Playhouse uh, right now. I have an internship, and they're doing it next season. Oh, amazing, uh, yeah. Yeah, so I'm, I'm very familiar with Tiny Beautiful Things. It's so great. And so I forget if it was the column that she does with Steve Almond, who is the original sugar. So he was the sugar columnist first and she was Mm -hmm. second. Um, But it was about what it was about, like mothering and motherhood relationships. Yeah. And the question of like, what do you do when you can't when you don't love your child? And that's something that no one talks about. And I mean, in this case, I decided to talk about postpartum depression. But there are women who have children who are like, listen, this kid, I'm responsible for this kid. I had this kid and, you know, I, I'm their mother and there's nothing I can do about it. But if I could go back in time and do it over again, I wouldn't have had a child. And that is like the most taboo thing I think a woman could say is that this torpedoed my life. I hate being a mother. I, I love, I care about my child, but I kind of wish I hadn't done this. That's a huge huge thing that I don't think people can talk about publicly. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a writer, her name's Islet Waldman and she's married to Michael Chabon, who's a wonderful novelist. And she wrote an article years and years and years ago called, I love my husband more than I love my children. And wow. man, she got, yeah, which is a huge thing to say. And her point was not that she didn't love her children. She did. Her point was, before. 15 years or whatever. And I've only known these kids for like X amount of years. And like this intact relationship is just really important to me in a way that these relationships are, have not gotten to that level yet. And that's what she was trying to say. But of course it's like, you know, I mean, the hordes descended upon yeah. her for even saying such a thing. Um, it's interesting. It's interesting also why we feel the need to take on that responsibility of someone else. Like, um, yeah. That that people I I couldn't tell just from the title of it that I'm sure she got hate mail, and what is it about uh, women fulfilling our expectations that we attack them when they don't? Well, I mean, <laughs> that's I mean, look at what's going on in the world today, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just I wish I could I I you know I came up 
you know, my teenage years were in the nineties with riot girl and feminism and all that stuff. And I, I really thought that things were going to just get better. I know progress doesn't follow a straight line, but I feel like in a lot of ways, things are, things are starting to backslide. Mm. Um, and it, there's just this groundswell of misogyny in our culture right now that I don't think we're addressing in the right way. And I'm not really sure how we should address it, but I don't think how it's going is great. Um, yeah. And, and I mean, I, I, I can't speak to how it's different from the nineties to now, but what, what, what I find sometimes terrifying is the, uh, the viewpoints of women upon women. And I think that is mm. in some ways explored in the play is the, the judgment that these women have for each other and their judgment that they have for themselves, especially with the Mary character that she makes every wrong decision at every wrong time in her life and how her mother wants to practically disown her because of it and how mm-hmm. their relationship is, is ruined because Mary makes mistakes. Um, and Mary isn't the daughter that her mother wanted her to be. So she pretends she's not. Right. Right. I, I mean, that's the thing that I, I think that we all get away from sometimes is women tearing down other women is also misogyny, but it's internalized misogyny. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I feel shame because I'm not accomplishing things I should. I feel shame because I'm not fitting into society. It's so much easier to get angry and upset with someone else you see not fulfilling that role than to really look into yourself and address your own self-loathing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that cycle plays itself out in mother-daughter relationships. And that's why those relationships are often described as difficult because mm-hmm. it's like, well, I didn't accomplish what I wanted to, or I did not fit into the role as well as I should have. So now it's your turn. Now you need, now you need to do that. Um, and yeah, and women can just, can be awful to each other. But I do think a lot of it comes from a place of, of shame and self-loathing and, you know, societal expectations rather than um just meanness i don't think it always comes from from just being straight up mean yeah absolutely and i think i think one of these like these characters are not mean they're just dealing with their own whatever's and and try, coming up against other people and their problems and how they cut how they interact with each other with their own baggage. It makes me curious um, if you have an answer or an open-ended answer as to what Nina's relationship is with her mother, because I feel like that is a big secret of the play, or at least a big secret from Mary, what that relationship is, um, that the audience never gets an insight into into what has happened between Nina and her mother. Yeah. It's funny. I wrote, um, I wrote a scene where Nina tells Bonnie about what went on with her mother, but then I just decided not to use it. And this was a long time ago because I felt like it was besides, it was beside the point because being estranged from your mother is another thing that's so taboo that no explanation that that character provides for it in the play is going to satisfy anyone. Mm-hmm. And so I just wanted to really present it as a fact of the play. Like mm-hmm. this is a fact. And we also don't meet Nina's husband either. Mm-hmm. Like I really wanted, and it was partially my decision too to isolate Nina and to show that she's very alone. 
in a lot of ways, even though she does have a husband. Um, but that she, this relationship, that's why she latches onto Mary because she's so lonely and she needs a friend. Um, and, um, yeah, so I just wanted to express that as a fact of the play rather than over explaining it. I have my own ideas of why, mm -hmm. but I feel like you can kind of plug in, you can kind of choose your own adventure. Um, yeah. I, I would never want to tell an audience member what their interpretation of that is because I feel like everybody can see different aspects of a relationship with their own mother in the play. And I, so I kind of wanted to leave that open as to like, Oh, what is a point where I would decide not to have a relationship with my mother mm -hmm. and let them kind of choose that for themselves and just have it be a fact of the world that Nina's in. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think, I have a very, very good relationship with my mom. I talk to her all the time, all the time. Um, and, but everyone has, has complications. And so it's, it's a fun think tank for me to imagine a world in which, how would it ever come to that, that I would have to like cut ties with my mother that mm -hmm. like, what would be the extreme version of a relationship. Um, and, and it's not a reality for me. So it's, it's just an interesting, um, place of empathy to find what would it be like for someone who doesn't have the relationship that I do. And I know many people, many of my friends don't have the relationship that I do to my mother. So it's, how can we have empathy for people who who have something different from us for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, as of now, um, you know, my mom and I don't have a good relationship at all. And it's one of those things where, um, it's such an individual private pain and it's so hard, especially when like you're supposed to be filling a certain role as a daughter. So you have that expectation on you. They're supposed to be filling a certain role as a mother that for whatever reason they're unable to. Um, and you have to kind of find a way to exist in that world. And I mean, telling people it's like, but she's your mother, you know, mm -hmm. that's the first thing you, but she's your mother. It's like, yeah, okay. But in a lot of cases, um, People are coming to terms with trauma and abuse. People have parents who are addicted to substances. Par you know, or, mm. there's a whole variety of things that are beyond a person's control. And mm. you can only do so much before you have to put your own oxygen mask on. And I think I talked um, in the play, Nina says a thing about, she's like, I thought I was strong enough to save her, that I'm Hercules. But I wasn't Hercules. I was Sisyphus. And I was pushing a boulder up a hill. And I mm. think that's really what it comes down to is like how much of your self-worth and your energy are you going to spend trying to fix a relationship that's not working? And yeah. would you do that with anyone? If this person was not biologically related to you, would you put forth the amount of effort that you're putting forward? Yeah. Yeah. That's a crazy question because we give different allowances to people that, that are related to us and that we're oh, yeah. closer to. Yeah. And I mean, there's things that you accept from, you would accept from a parent that you would never accept from a friend or a romantic partner or, you know, because you would just be like, well, this is crazy. But then because it's your parent, you're expected to just, you know, put up with it. Mm -hmm. Um, and parental estrangement 
is a thing. Um, and there are a lot of women who are estranged from a parent and it's, 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 it's tough. And then there's also, you know, women who lose their mothers, um, cause their moms die or they abandon them or, you know, I mean, there's so many ways to be motherless, um, in the society and kind yeah. of like, what does that mean? You know, how do you function? Like who becomes the surrogate? Is there a surrogate mother? Um, you know, and then you think about families that have two mothers, like, what's that like, you know, or, you know, two fathers, what's that like? Um, the role of mother in our society, I think is, I hope is starting to shift because there's all different kinds of ways to parent. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, we have some maybe not so great examples. (laughs) Um, but, but really truthful examples as to how hard it is and how we have this expectation that once you have a child, like, oh, you should know what to do because there's like one way to mother. And of course there isn't one way to mother. Um, and, and no one is good at it. And, uh, we're all, you know, and everyone's just trying to be their best or has given up on trying to be their best. Um, right. and or their best or their best was just never fulfill <laughs> expectations <laughs> of yeah. what it is to be a mother. Yeah. And I, I think that, yeah. And there is, I mean, I do have a tremendous, even though I'm not choosing to parent myself, I have a tremendous amount of empathy for women who have children. Um, and I think that I think it's really hard. It's hard to know how to raise a functional kid. It's, it's hard to know what you're doing. They don't come with a manual. Um, and then you go on to, and now with the internet, I mean, you go on to mommy blogs, you know, I mean, I think that's a really derogatory <laughs> for women writing about parenthood and they're like mommy blogs. It's like, all right, all right. But, um, <laughs> I, I think there's so much competing information that you have no idea at any time if you're making the right choice, mm-hmm. just not, um, I mean, and what is the right choice? Because there's never a right choice. No, no, you have to do what you think is best. And some people, you know, who haven't been through uh, therapy or mental health counseling who maybe needed to have a faulty way of dealing with the world in general. And then they wind up raising their children in a faulty way. And then those children have mental health issues. And then, you know, the cycle continues. And so... Mm -hmm. I really do think we do have like, you know, mental health issues in this country that absolutely have to be addressed. And there needs to be that support for new mothers, mm-hmm. like new mothers in this country. We don't even get maternity leave. Yeah. Some places, like some places don't give you any time at all, or you have to take time unpaid. And we're the only developed nation that doesn't give maternity leave to mothers. It's mm-hmm. crazy. And how are you supposed to have good mental health when you're worrying so much about feeding your kid, about making money, about, you know, only spending a few months at home with them isn't enough. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, there's just so many, um, dimensions to this issue. Yeah, absolutely. I don't have answers. I don't have answers to it. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what makes a good parent or a bad parent. I just, um, there just needs to be more support, um, mm-hmm. for women who choose to have children. And that doesn't mean that, And a lot of people are like, oh, well, they made their choice. So, you know, they need to live with it. And it's like, well, yeah, okay. But in society, like there's going to be children. People want to have children. It's a biological imperative for a lot of people Mm -hmm. Um, and an emotional imperative. And, you know, and we have to have more people to go on after us. So, you know, people are going to keep having children. Um, And I feel like there just needs to be 
more honesty, more transparency, more openness, and less judgment of women in general. But when it comes to motherhood, it's really vicious. Absolutely. I think it's, it's, it's more vicious than maybe any other area for women. Yeah, I think it's up there. I think it's definitely, it's definitely up there. Um, because it's a universal thing to pounce on. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to point fingers and say, oh, she's a bad mom. Uh-huh. She did this to her kids. Oh, she didn't put her kid in the right car seat. Like she's, you know, she's a bad mother. Yeah. Um, so it's, and, and it's equal opportunity. It's like men and women can pounce on that. Um, yeah. Society. But I feel like it's, it's really unhealthy. And I hope that, you know, people who saw this play, some people had gone through postpartum depression and said they really related to it. And I was like, well, that's, you know what, if I can have a few people who come and really see their experience reflected back to them that they said they, and they did say, you know, one of them told me that they had never seen a TV show or a movie or anything that got it right. And she Mm -hmm. felt like I had gotten it right. And I was like, well, that's it. My job is done. Um, (laughs) You know, because that's what I, that's really what I wanted. I wanted mothers to see, especially mothers who have been through postpartum to mm-hmm. see themselves and to see their struggle reflected back at them. Cause I feel like in movies and TV shows, they've always taken it to an extreme. Like, um, Oh, what the hell was her name? Uh, Susan Smith, that woman who drowned all her children. Oh yeah. Which is still, it's such an insane story, but you know, she had a complete psychotic break. Yeah. Um, but I feel like that's on the super extreme end of mm-hmm. PPD, but yeah you know, it can get bad. I mean, you know, what Nina goes through, it gets pretty bad because she's just, you know, she's just in denial that this needs to be medically treated Mm -hmm. because, you know, if you start taking antidepressants, that affects breastfeeding, that affects, you know, it affects all kinds of things. Um, you know, and then you have to have time to adjust the medication and then who's going to watch the kid. And like, what if I don't feel good one day? And so a lot of women delay treatment. Um, so, you know, yeah, absolutely. And I think the, the scene between Mary and Nina in the hospital is such a poignant one because for the first time in the play, Mary has knows more than the other characters. She's, she's been through that experience and she can't speak to the experience of motherhood or pregnancy the same way that Nina and Bonnie can. But for the first time she comes from a place of knowing and can give kind of a gift to Nina and say, Hey, I I do know something about this and, and you need to get out um, because you're worth it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. And I always said that Mary Mary, even though she lies in the play and she lies a lot and she tells a lot of stories and, um, fabricates things. And, you know, I, I, do I want to call her a pathological liar? I mean, she kind of is in a way. Um, but Mary is always the emotionally truthful one in the play. Mm-hmm. Like she was my anchor. Like she's always emotionally honest, even when she's not being honest, she is the she is the truth of the play. And I think in that scene, I think it's the first time in the scene that Mary tells the truth. Mm -hmm. Um, totally all the way. And then that enables her to tell her mother the truth in the scene. And that's when she, she's like, I can't do this anymore. Um, but yeah. And it, it, you know, saying that you're worth it and practicing, you know, we call, call it self care, but I mean, really it's survival. Um, Mm -hmm. 
if you don't treat mental health issues, they don't go away. They don't go away. They just get worse. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And, and, you know, we need healthcare. <laughs> we need, we need access to these resources for people. And I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hoping we get it. Hoping we, t- we all take it more seriously and know that it's a huge issue that needs to be addressed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I have a question for you. Yeah. You're a playwright. Um, I am. What, else are, what else are you working on right now? Oh my God. I, I've been through this like weirdly prolific for me few years where I've just written, a, I've just written a whole bunch of plays. Um, I just finished, I just finished a two hander. Um, Ooh. I'm not quite ready to talk. Like, you know what I mean? I feel weird mm-hmm. about it. Like I literally just finished it. Um, but it's, it's two women and it, it has to do with the me too movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I've never written a two hander before. Um, so I'm actually really excited cause I've had this goal for like a decade. I'm like, write a two hander. Um, <laughs> and it's actually, it's really, it's really difficult to write a two hander. Um, just, you have to keep it interesting for, mm-hmm. you know, 90 minutes or yeah. how long it is. And it's very hard to keep it interesting between two people. Yeah. Um, so it's definitely a challenge. Um, I've been working on my play for a while now called uh, Wendy and the Neckbeards, which is about the targeted. <laughs> yeah, um, it's about the targeted online harassment of women. Um, and so this makeup blogger named Wendy has her own YouTube channel and she gets trolls and the trolls are represented by a chorus of neckbeards who roll in on computer chairs. Um <laughs> So, and they say terrible things to her and, uh, it's, it's a wild play. Um, I, I finished it just before the election. <laughs> oh, um, wow. Yeah. I had spent a lot of time, um, on Reddit and Forch ugh, and like 4chan and like pickup artists, like men's rights activist forums. Wow. And so a lot of the language that the men in this play use is derived from having done all that research. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's really a journey through online misogyny. And, um, there's this other, other man in the play, Chad, his girlfriend, Jess finds out that he has been harassing women online. Wow. And that he says he's been doing it to blow off steam. Um, and then he gets fixated on Wendy and the whole thing goes bananas. But, um, yeah, it's, it's 11 characters. Um, <laughs> um, it's incredible. It's, it's incredibly profane. It's, um, the play kind of disintegrates. It's much, I mean, it couldn't be more of a different play than worse mother. Although mm-hmm. it's kind of looking at, you know, women, it's, it's kind of looking at women, but I think all my plays do. Um, yeah. so I'm trying to, I'm trying to see if somebody will do this crazy play. I mean, you know, <laughs> 11 characters is a big ask for budgets and, but I've been sending it out and I'm hoping it did, it did pretty well as a finalist for a bunch of stuff. And so I'm really hoping someone does it. Um, fingers crossed. Yeah. Fingers like crossed big time. A lot of fun. Yeah. And then I work, I just had a workshop of my play Hyannis, which is about, um, a fan, a working class family in Cape Cod, I guess they're like middle-class, um, who are suffering the repercussions of their son's heroin addiction. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, because heroin is a huge problem in Cape Cod, which is something I didn't know until I saw this documentary. Um, and I grew up in a family with a addiction, big time. Mm-hmm. And I had always wanted to write a play about that experience, but I didn't want to write about my 
own family because it felt too close. And like, I wasn't able to object objectively write a play about it unless I like put myself in the play. And like some writers love doing that. And I'm just not one of them. I haven't gotten there yet. Um, so this play allowed me to write a family, a family, it's, it's a family drama about addiction really is what it is. But I was able to write people I know, cause I'm from the Northeast. I'm from Connecticut, but I have family in Massachusetts. I spent a lot of time there. Um, and so I was able to write these strong new England women <laughs> of this play. Cause the mom, Michelle is, uh, she's gay and has a partner. And then she works in the store. They, her and her mother, Fran own a, a like souvenir store, yeah. um, that they've run for 30 something years. So it's really like, even though it is about their, their son and grandson's addiction, it's much more about the women in the family and the sacrifices they've made, um, kind of during this and, you know, to keep this business running and to try to keep their son alive. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of, yeah. So that's kind of, that's kind of the long and short of it. I mean, there's a few other projects. Like I want to write a TV pilot and I'm just finding it daunting, but I'm working on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, I believe um, in you. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I want to believe in myself. Um, it's, it's like learning, it's like learning a different language. Um, and it's more freeing cause you can kind of jump around in a way that you can't in a play, but it's also still also kind of like that abundance of choice in a lot of ways makes it more difficult. Mm hmm um, to write. So, but I'm working on it. Um, so yeah, so we'll, we'll see. And then I'm just taking a little bit of a break. Um, I just adopted two kittens, so they're keeping me very busy. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. What are their names? Annie and Tallulah. Annie is a little black cat and Tallulah is a tabby. And I, yeah, we just got them last weekend. They're 10 weeks old and they're, oh my goodness. they're just so filling cute. my days with joy. And I love them. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like taking a little kitten distraction break and then, you know, we'll start digging into some other stuff. That's super cool. What are you working on? Are you in anything right now? Yeah. Um, I, I just moved to the San Francisco Bay area two months ago after closing a, uh, a new play, a world premiere called fragments okay. by Jessica Sage. It was in Ashland. So I, I closed that in March. Um, and then I moved out to the San Francisco Bay area and I have an internship at San Francisco playhouse. Um, I'm, currently the assistant director on, uh, the musical women on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah. At town hall theater in Lafayette, which has been so much fun. The director is Dominique Williams, who was my directing professor and, um, a, a mentor of mine while I lived in Ashland. So it's really cool to, to get to work with her again. Um, and I just got cast in a production of Henry the fifth, um, to be at Vallejo Shakespeare in the park. Uh, yeah, I've, I've got I've my fingers Busy. in a lot of, a lot of jars. I've got an audition today that I have to figure out how to dress as a coder. I'm wearing my boyfriend's shirt right now. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. How do you, yeah, that's, I mean, I guess that's a coder outfit. I'm like, yeah, oh. well, he, he's a, he, he, he works in the tech field. So I feel like, so then he knows, he, he knows. He, he works knows. with Coder. So I'm just wearing an old shirt of his that's that's smaller on him with with checks. So we'll see. Um yeah, I've got I've got a lot of stuff going on uh right now and it's 
all kind of piecemealing together into into my life. But That's really exciting. I love San Francisco. I haven't been I haven't been in like ten years. I know it's changed tremendously since the last time I was there. Um, Probably. Um, just in terms of the tech boom and the you know that whole thing. I think I was there like just at the start of it. Um, when I was, mm-hmm. it was just a vacation, but I loved, I loved San Francisco. I would have been, I was like, yeah. I would move here in a second. And I'm a very dyed in the wool New Yorker at this point, but I was just like, <laughs> I could do this. I could do this beautiful place easily. Um, and I thought it was yeah. so mysterious and cool and I just really loved it. Yeah. I live in the East Bay, which if you aren't familiar with the, the climate of the San Francisco Bay area is much warmer than San Francisco. So it's, oh, it's yeah. a possibility for me to live here. I'm from um, Santa Clarita. So it's like the deserts north of LA and I'm oh, yeah, 100 is warm. nice for me. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I I need lots of sun in my day. Yeah. So then uh, Chicago would not be a place you no. could move to. Yeah. No, no I went to <laughs> I would Chicago have... once and I thought I was crying because I was so cold and I, I was know. like, never, never I again. Love, I love Chicago. Chicago is the city I cheat on New York with. I say that all the time, <laughs> but those winters are, um, they're brutal. Um, so we had our rehearsals for the play. I was out there for a week for the first week of rehearsals. It was at the end of February mm-hmm. and it was cold, actually mid February. It was cold. Oof. It was very cold and snowy. And I mean, it gets cold here too. New York mm-hmm. is cold also, yeah. but Chicago like special cold. Yeah. Different. Yeah. I was in Oregon or doing the world premiere and it was also, it was, it was cold. It was not Chicago special cold, but it was snowing. Yeah. Yeah. So pretty, I hate cold weather, but I grew up in the Northeast. So I'm just like used to it. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, right now we're having an cool spring, which we didn't have last year in any way. Oh, yeah. Nice. So we're actually having like 65, 70 degrees and sunny. I'm like, okay, it can stay like this all year. I'm, uh, I'm fine. <laughs> I am fine with that. Yeah. Cool. So how many of these, um, play for keeps plays have you done? So I have acted as an, as a character in yours. Um, that's the only one that I've, I've been a character. I'm also the stage directions for for Nina, um, which is um, kind of like a sequel play to the seagull. It's it's like if Constantine missed for a second time and they got 15 years older, but also took place now. So it's really, really funny. Um, definitely worth checking out. It was an awesome cast and the entire time we, we had to like keep pausing because everyone was laughing so hard. Oh, that's um, funny. So it was, it was very funny and it was very, very fun to work on. Whereas like worst mother in the world, we were just like looking into each other's eyes deeply and crying. Yeah. That's so I funny. Mean, I know my actors cried too. It was like, I was like, sorry. <laughs> It was so fun. No, it, it, like it's, it, I don't, I don't know what it's like for people who are not actors, but for people who are actors, I think it's really fun to cry in staring into someone else's eyes. Well, it's um, catharsis, you know. It I is mean, catharsis. that's why we. It's part of why we do this. Let's be real. Like, we, yeah, we crave catharsis and uh, processing emotions through stories. So it's not, it's not, it's not weird at all. I used to act too, and I used to like to cry too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was and. And Erica Sullivan and Tamara Mathias are such 
badass ladies. They're so yeah. They cool. were really. You guys were so, all really really good. Yeah. I actually really liked listening on podcast because it's like, I like the idea of, I actually like audio dramas too, a lot. I've gotten really Mm -hmm. super into them. So it's like really cool. You can just like listen to a play on your commute. Yeah, absolutely. That's what, that's what, um, when I'm making a drive from the Bay area to Ashland, that's often what I'm doing is that five hour drive. I listen to two or three plays, um, get in my theater for the drive. And it's, I really, have you listened to any of the other Play for Keeps podcasts? I, I started to listen, I think For Nina was the one I've started to listen to. And then mm-hmm. I got distracted and then I got the show and then I did the show. So I've been like super busy, but I actually have a trip to, um, I'm going to the Dominican Republic with my best friend next month. Ooh. And I think that that's going to be amazing airplane activities. Yes. Um, so yeah, I have like a whole, usually when I'm actively writing or actively working on a play in production, it's very difficult for me to do a lot of intake. Mm-hmm. Um, I know some people are like, I went to see seven shows and then I wrote, I'm, I need, I have a very like input output button. So mm-hmm. when I'm actually making theater, I'm not really immersing myself in other people's work. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. It's like, it's like, I just need to be, live in my own world. And then I go through like binge periods where mm-hmm. like, I'll see mm-hmm. like 10 plays in a month and like, you know, listen to a bunch of stuff. So now yeah. that the show, now that the show is over and I'm out of, I'm out of a uh, workshop mode on the other play. Now I can like, okay, now I'm going to listen to a whole bunch of these plays. There's a lot yeah. of them too. There's, there are a lot. Um, I think we have, don't quote me on this, but I think there's 24 of them. I could be wrong. Um, but we have a solid amount because um, so many of them got like produced at the early beginning and then um, two more are released every month. So yeah, it's exciting. I'm not, I'm not caught up. I've listened to quite a few of them, but I haven't listened to the more recent ones. Um, yeah. And, and I think it's a really cool experience, especially as an actor um, to have this resource. There's one of the plays, which I love, love, love called brilliant works of art by Donna. Oh Hoke. yeah. I have that one downloaded. I want to listen to that. I like Donna Hoke a lot. She's awesome Me too. She's so cool. I love yeah, all yeah. of her work. Um, and I was nominated for, um, an Irene Ryan award. I don't know if you know what that is. It's, no, I don't. um, it's a college acting award nomination, but it's a scholarship. It's kind of complicated, but, um, so people who perform in college productions are nominated to compete for a scholarship. Um, and I was nominated. So I needed to find a short scene for my partner and I, and listening to brilliant works of art. Um, I was like, this is such a great scene. Um, even though I'm not one of the actors in the recording, um, I, I chose a scene from, from, from that play. Um, I got rights to do it from Donna. So I think it's a really cool resource for people who are making theater to, to find more material because I never would have found brilliant works of art had it, had it not been a play for keeps podcast. Oh yeah, totally. I think that it, it really expands out the reach of who can listen. Um, and some people are in areas where they don't have a theater they can just go to, you know, and this gives, this gives people an opportunity to listen to a play, um, and maybe really dig it, or maybe it would want, make them want to see more theater. Um, I guess, I don't know. I think it's really cool. I think we should be doing more, more podcasting. 
Yeah, I think it's really cool. And hey, here we are doing more And we're doing podcasts. a podcast. <laughs> I know. I keep like threatening to start my own podcast and then I'm like, oh, right, that's more work um, on top of everything else. Um, <laughs> it, it's just there's not enough hours in the day to do all the things that I have banging around in my head. But mm-hmm. um, my, initial, my initial impulse was to start a podcast about rejection because mm. I don't think we all talk about it in an honest way enough. And kind of like how you keep going, but then I just keep getting distracted by projects. <laughs> but maybe one day, maybe, maybe one, one day, day, I'll, maybe one day I'll get it together and start a podcast. Cool. Yeah. Well, thanks for podcasting with me. It was so much fun. I'm so glad I finally got to talk to you after. I know. After my play and then talking on the internet. Yeah, it's cool to to put. Uh, a voice to your name. Mm-hmm. I know. I already knew what you sounded like. So I didn't know what you sounded like <laughs> in the slightest. Yeah. Oh, it's so awesome. This was really fun. I had a great time. Me too. Super yeah. Cool. Well, hopefully we'll do it again someday soon. Yes. It would. It would be lovely to meet you in person when. Oh, please. I would love to. I'm hoping to collide the West Coast. Yeah. Exactly. Thanks for listening. Make sure to check out our premium collection of pod plays at playforkeeps.org for a collection of plays made in Ashland, Oregon. Play for Keeps podcast is produced by Ashland New Plays Festival and Play for Keeps. This podcast was produced by Andy Herndon, art direction by Cara Quinn Lewis. Play for Keeps is directed by Jim Pagliasotti. Written content is edited by Carol Florian. Special thanks to Kyle Hayden, Jackie Apodaca and Beth Cantor. This is your host, Mary Claire Erdenast. Please visit us online at playforkeeps.org. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. Help us spread the word. Like, follow, share, and retweet. See you next time at Play for Keeps Podcast. Books are meant to be read. Plays are meant to be said.